Greetings. You're listening to the Living Your Best Life in Africa podcast, and this is episode 35. everyone. I hope you had a positive week. My week? It's been amusing. (laughs) Lots of people I know are traveling in Africa at the moment and sending me really funny memes which are keeping me laughing and it's good because I can't be home at the moment so it's really uplifting for me and I hope you've had some upliftment in your week. You know that it's good to laugh, but I also understand that in lots of our relationships, laughing is the last thing some of us want to do, and it's the last thing that some of us are able to do. And here's where I want to continue the current theme, where I began last week looking at someone or something that might be holding us back from living our best life. If you listen to last week's episode, you'll know that I dealt with the impact of loneliness on your ability to live your best life. This week, I'm starting a series of podcasts that look at domestic abuse in all its forms, beginning this week with looking at how physical harm in your relationship can hold you back from living your best life. It's interesting that we should be talking about this subject during the United Nations 16 Days of Activism Against Gender-Based Violence campaign. Now, that campaign runs every year from the 25th of November to the 10th of December. So we're right at the beginning of that campaign. And I think it just ties in really, really well with this week's podcast and also with future podcast topics that we're going to talk about. Right across the world, organisations and businesses are paying particular attention to gender-based and domestic violence in the work that they're doing. And I felt that this podcast should be no different because black people also suffer domestic abuse in all its forms. But more importantly, research tells us that black people in general and black women in particular are often overlooked when state and organisational attention is focused on this particular concern. Before we get into our discussion, there are a few points I want to make on this subject. When we look at who the sufferers of domestic abuse are, there has always been some debate and dispute about this, mainly because the way domestic violence incidents are recorded has changed. In the past... Young people were very much excluded or minimised in surveys about domestic abuse because it was thought to be a phenomenon that mainly affected older people from the ages of 21 and upwards. Today, that's changed and the way figures are recorded now includes young people and their relationships. And at the end of 2018, the figures show that in the UK, an estimated 2 million people between the ages of 16 and 59, reported to have suffered domestic abuse, which is based on abuse they've suffered in their relationships across all forms of abuse. 
that equates to 1.3 million women and wait for it, 695,000 men. So for every two women, you'll have one man who suffers domestic abuse. And when we look at domestic abuse in all its form, this figure is realistic because we're including physical abuse, sexual abuse, financial abuse, emotional abuse, psychological abuse and online and internet abuse. And we know that some of the forms of abuse are more prevalent to particular genders and age groups. This list of abuses forms the main headers that you will recognise but when you look at each of these abuses in more detail, you do tend to find other forms of abuse that are also part of particular headings. So, for example, when you're looking at psychological abuse, you might get something like stalking included in that form of abuse. Or when you're looking at online and internet abuse, you can spill over into grooming. So there are some cross-references and that's why the figures are much more realistic now. What is key to our understanding when we look at domestic abuse is that sometimes the abuse is the last thing that happens because your partner may have conditioned you into recognising certain behaviours that are precursors to domestic abuse taking place. Or maybe using certain behaviours to control you Things like, for example, accusing you of having an affair, blaming you for the abuse you suffer or criticising you or shouting at you to make you feel small. These types of behaviours and controls can be ways of keeping you in check so that even if a form of abuse is not happening to you, let's say physical abuse, seeing you in fear that the abuse might happen might be enough to keep your abuser happy and feeling in control of you. Now this week I'm looking at physical abuse in relationships in a little more detail and in particular how physical abuse can hold you back and prevent you from doing anything linked to living your best life. I wanted to start at the beginning with a definition of physical abuse that I'm working with and that definition is that physical abuse is when a person you are in a relationship with which could be your marriage partner, your common-law partner, or even a casual partner. When that person hurts you in a physical way, by slapping you, hitting or punching you, pushing you, shoving you, biting or kicking you, burning you, choking you, holding you against your will, throwing things at you, physically preventing you from moving around, either indoors or outdoors, and threatening to kill you, then you are in a physically abusive relationship. Now, obviously, that list is not exhaustive. There are some things you could take out because they're features of other abuses, and there are some things that you could add in. But that's generally the kinds of things we look at when we're looking at physical abuse in an abusive relationship. Now, if you're the victim of abuse, you may question yourself when physical abuse happens in your relationship asking yourself how you would know if you're a victim of physical abuse. This is because being abused is more than just saying you're a victim after you've been kicked or punched or assaulted. It doesn't take you being assaulted for you to understand that you're a victim of physical abuse, but often this is what happens. 
In reality, the abuse and victimisation of you starts way before the actual physical assault. For example, if you feel you're being abused, there is a good chance that you may be. And because of this, it's much better to look at physical abuse by saying to yourself that if you feel like you're being abused, there's a good chance that you may be. But if you need more pointers, think about whether you're afraid of your partner. Because if you are, that right there is a red flag. That fear can also extend to being scared to do anything that you feel may incite your partner to physically abuse you. And when you're living with that kind of fear, there can be no part of your life which can be healthy. And in the context of this podcast and its purpose for existing, you might rightly feel that you're not or may never be in a position to live your best life. When it comes to physical violence in relationships, women are the overwhelming victims of this type of abuse. And although it's recognised that the reasons black women suffer in a more acute way than women from other races, that those reasons are complex. One of the reasons put forward for this is that black women are held back from seeking help because of race priorities rather than gender priorities, meaning that black women prioritise issues of racism rather than sexism, meaning that black women might seek to protect black men who abuse them because of the community and race stigma of airing our dirty laundry in public with our oppressors. Meaning, lots of meaning this week, meaning how can you go to an organisation or a service that oppresses you to talk about being oppressed? And because of that dilemma, rather than reaching out to safety and to protect ourselves as black women, we stay in abusive relationships. Now, I'm not saying that there isn't an element of truth to this. I believe there is some truth to this as one of the reasons that black women suffer in silence when we're in abusive relationships. But to me, this response is an attempt at an easy get out of jail card for generations of failed policy approaches towards the needs of African descent people in the West, men and women. Behind this failure, for example, is the often hidden and not expressed view that any service that prioritises the needs of black people, let's say a black women's domestic violence service, as big as an organisation like Women's Aid, any such type of service is seen as a wasted service that should not be state-funded because of its exclusivity. And what they mean by that is that if a service is for black people alone, then that service is not universal and therefore not available to everyone and therefore should be paid for by those people who want that service. Never mind that African descent people pay taxes in Western countries, the same as all other races, and disproportionately, we pay more tax than some of the largest multinational companies in the world. When I reflect on this, I often feel that animals are treated better when it comes to providing specific services that are needed. Because even though all animals share the same classification of animal, 
There is a recognition that you cannot feed and care for all animals in the same way, particularly if you want what's best for your animals. But the same cannot be said for the way people are treated in Western countries, which pride themselves on having some of the highest levels of civilization and modernity in the world. In Western countries, you get the service that you're given. There is no specific service that addresses the needs of black women that is as big and as, as universally available to black women as the service that is available for white women. And in addition to that, when you have black people in the West who are locked out of Western economies to the tune of losing billions of pounds and dollars a year because of underpayment in salaries, underemployment and no employment, the compound effect of this situation in one of its simplest forms is that black people have very little insight into the benefits of using collective wealth to fund services in our best interests. And the knock-on effects of poor services or no services in relation to attempting to flee physical violence are that fear may force you or coerce you to remain in abusive relationships. Decisions to flee abusive relationships are also influenced by the poor level of relevant legal and support services that black women receive, leading to a situation where, for example, the relevancy and relatedness of current police practices alongside trusting the police being at an all-time low in black communities all over the Western world, we now have a situation where black women will hesitate before reporting abuse. Because, after all, you want the abuse to stop, but you don't want your partner to be killed in the process. And so, again, black women have to shoulder the responsibility for that dilemma. And that limits where black women can go to get real, relevant and quality help. And sadly... Because of this sorry state of affairs, black women are two and a half times more likely to be murder victims in our relationships. So, should this be our only story as African descent women and men who are in physically abusive relationships? We think things are bad, but should we just accept this and move on to live with it? Should we live limited lives filled with abuse and not even dream about living lives that could be better? The simple answer to this is no. So what should you do if you're in a physically abusive relationship? If you're listening to this podcast and you see yourself or someone you know represented in some of the things that I'm saying, I want you to believe that it is possible for them and for you to live your best life because for all of us living our best life is a relative experience meaning that everyone's way of living their best life is unique and relevant to them. What may be the best life for one person small though it is will not be the best life for another person. Each person's life is valuable and how they live it is valuable. That said, there are some additional things that you can do to get the help you need 
to get you to a point where you're getting the best out of day-to-day living, if that is all you can do. Firstly, don't minimise the abuse. You don't have to wait until you have broken bones or bruises before you convince yourself that you are being abused. It's important to remember that most abusers are charming and apologetic after the abuse. And after the abuser has really hurt you, there will usually be a honeymoon period where you kind of see reminders about the beautiful person your partner can be when they're not beating on you. But after the honeymoon period passes, the cycle of abuse starts again. And by now you will know the behaviours, you'll recognise them and you'll feel the tensions rising again all the time knowing that an explosion of violence will likely follow. If you recognise this description, then you have to acknowledge that you are existing in an abusive relationship. It comes down to that old saying that acknowledging the problem is real and is as bad as it could be is 50% of moving towards beginning to solve the problem. Secondly, you need to think twice about using your mobile phone or home computer to search for help. If your partner is someone who checks everything you do, then it's safe to assume that your devices and your social media accounts are also being checked. It's much better to find a safe computer that you can use to find out information or to contact safe people. One of the best places to find a safe computer is at your local library. Many people don't even know that. But laws were passed in the early 2000s, I think round about 2008, where all local authorities have to provide computers so that people can go there, book time and complete certain tasks and access information online. You can usually book a space on the computer for at least 30 minutes. And if you plan out in your head what you want to search for and make sure you're clear about the information you need, you should be able to use that time to make some headway. It might take several visits to wherever your safe place is where you're using your computer before you get things straight in your mind about your plans to get yourself to safety. Thirdly, you must reach out for help, even if it's just to talk. There are a small number of quality black services that are specifically set up to support black women and women from other races. I'll put the details of those organisations at the bottom of the show notes where you're listening to this podcast. There are also lots of domestic violence organisations that have resources that can help you. And even though those organisations are not specific to your racial needs, they are a starting point and any start is better than no start. I'll also put a link to several of those organisations in the show notes too. If you're going to reach out to a friend or family member, be sure that it's a person that will genuinely help you and not someone who will minimise the seriousness of the situation you're in. 
And also don't choose someone who may want to undermine the brave step you've taken to reach out to them for help. You need to surround yourself with people who believe in you enough to be able to support you to make the decisions rather than trying to make the decisions for you. And lastly, it's really important that you make a safety plan for yourself. Your safety plan will be made up of key things like knowing who your safe person is whom you can talk to and having somewhere safe to go so that when the day comes when you decide that you're leaving and going to a safe place or circumstances force you to leave, that you have somewhere to go. Also, start putting away small amounts of money where you can access it. If you have a safe person, then give that money to that safe person to save for you so that when you do leave, you're able to pay for essentials until you can get help from agencies. This is particularly important if you have children and you need to leave with them. It may take some time before things start to come through for you when you leave the family home. So it's better to have small amounts of money that allow you to maintain a degree of your independence because it will make you feel better about yourself, that you're not a burden to the people who are trying to help you. Having said that, I'm pretty sure that if you've got real and genuine friends and family members who want the best for you, they wouldn't want you to see not having money as a hindrance to you not taking the steps to leave and get to safety. Now, it may take you many attempts before you pluck up the courage to take decisive action to put distance between yourself and your abuser and the abuse. It's therefore really important to bear in mind that lots will happen in the time between you deciding that you're leaving and when you actually leave. And because you know you have a plan and that in the future you're telling yourself that things are going to change for the better, your whole presentation might change because you're wearing the positives on the inside, a bit like being anxious but happy on the inside. But it's important to note also that you might see a change in your partner as well. And you may begin to see many good points about your partner that may well confuse you into believing that things might be getting better. But it's really important that you follow through on your plans. The time to be most vigilant with your plans is when your partner realises that you are planning to leave him or her. Make sure you're clear about the steps you've put into your safety plan and follow through with your plan. Even if the day you decide to put distance between your abuser and the abuse just happens to be a good day. Remember, there is no good day when you're in a violent relationship. There are just days when you haven't been abused. In closing, I want to say that where physical abuse is part of your daily life, I want you to consider that living your best life has to be a day-to-day -day achievement. That if you can do one thing a day that takes you a step further away from being abused, 
that you then use that success to tell yourself that you have lived your best life for that day. Then you do the same the next day. It's in the combined effort of taking small steps every day to keep yourself safe and to put distance between you and your abuser and the abuse that together when all the steps are added up you will have a bigger and growing vision of what it might feel like to live your best life every day and not just day to day. Please do what you can to stay safe and if you know someone that needs to listen to this podcast pass on the information to them. I wish you a great week and I look forward to you tuning in next week. You've been listening to the Living Your Best Life in Africa podcast. My name is Dr. Asha and for this week, I'm out. Mm -hmm.